0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jay Bradner. Jay is the president of the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, or NIBR. This is one of the heavyweights in big pharma R&D. When Novartis planted this operation in the heart of Cambridge, Massachusetts more than a decade ago, it was the start of a trend toward big pharma R&D operations nuzzling up in close proximity to the academics, startups, and VCs who live in the Harvard-MIT corridor. Jay, before taking on this high-powered job overseeing 6,000 drug discovery employees worldwide, operated on the less wealthy but highly creative academic side of Cambridge Bioland. He was on the faculty at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He became known there for his advocacy of open source biology and his acumen at chemical biology. Neither of these things necessarily were conventional resume-building activities for a traditional candidate to run NIBBER. For one thing, he had never led an organization bigger than your standard academic lab. In this conversation, you'll hear a smart guy with a lot of boyish enthusiasm. You'll also hear someone who's well aware of the many things he doesn't know and the humbling magnitude of the challenges in biomedicine that are daunting even to an organization with the horsepower of Nibber. Now before we start, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? There are two ways to support it. One, your organization might consider a sponsorship. After all, there aren't many places where you can see an audience of 3,000 biotech leaders tuning in every other week for a very immersive listening experience. These shows also have a real shelf life. That means that a sponsor of this show will increase its brand awareness for months or even years to come. There's a lot of mileage here. Interested? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Another way to support my work is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's only $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week. And you'll read not just my writing on biopharma, but also in-depth reports from contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, Kyle Sarakawa, and more go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Lastly, are you attending the American Society of Clinical Oncology in Chicago? I'll be giving my Everest presentation on Saturday night. This event is being sponsored by Servier and will be free for the ASCO community. The talk, focused on teamwork and leadership for the big goals in life, will be at 7 o'clock, June 1, at 610 South Michigan Avenue. My hope is to give back to the community and light a few fires for those who have their own Everest-like goals for cancer. I hope to see a bunch of TR subscribers there. Now, please join me and Jay Bradner on The Long Run. Jay Bradner, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. It's wonderful to be here. So I've been looking forward to this for some time, Jay. Uh, As you know, uh, I'll I'll let the listeners know, um, you were gracious enough to join the Boston Cancer Summit that I hosted last year prior to the Everest expedition. And um, I didn't know you very well at at that time. Uh, But I knew that, you know, running Nibber, uh, a lot of people might be interested to hear what you have to say uh, at this meeting. You came there. And what struck me um, was not that, like, a lot of Big Pharma R&D heads. That you've got this kind of 30,000-foot view and and that you're articulate and all that. I mean, I th- and accomplished. I mean, that all kind of comes with the territory. But the thing that uh, I remember most was that you stayed the entire time. You stayed all the way to the end in the networking hour, long after you could have gone home and done other work. And you're talking to graduate students from MIT, as I recall. Yes. It's like the only thing I remember. I don't remember anything you said. <laughs> Maybe one little anecdote, but, um, that said to me, like, you've got this kind of boyish enthusiasm, maybe sometimes joy on your better days for the scientific enterprise there that you can't fake it, it, uh, it, it radiates. It's infectious. And I want to, uh, I want to be around that. I can see why people want to be around that. Uh, and I can see why you do what you do. So thank you for, um, doing that. Well,
1: Luke, thanks. That's very kind. It was a wonderful meeting. It's um, uncommon for the leaders in this biotech community to get together and organizing around your brave trip up Everest was a, a honestly a great chance to connect with people I don't see that much um, and compare notes on our research strategies. Um, everything seems quite sensible when you bake it with your leadership team. But when you do have a chance to introduce new ideas to this rich biomedical community here in Cambridge. Uh, The feedback's always wonderful. And often, as you point out, it's from, you know, the the least wired, um, brightest, early career minds. Um, Yeah, so thanks for that. That was really kind.
0: Well... And uh, we have a lot to cover in this episode. I'll probably only get to half of it. you got so much going on. You've had a decorated career. I mean, the, I know you can nerd out scientifically on protein degraders yes. and, and all kinds of, of cool science, chemical biology. Um, so, But let's just, uh, let's just dive into your background to get started. I know you're from Chicago. Is this where you're, you're born and raised? I was born in Cleveland, but raised in Chicago.
1: And I am, um, for better or for worse, thoroughly Midwestern.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So w- at what age did you come to Chicago? I moved to Chicago when I was
1: uh, two years old. My father, an attorney, was at the time working with the American Bar Association, which was transferred from Chicago, from Cleveland to Chicago. And I was raised in, you know, classic John Hughes, Ferris Bueller's suburban Chicago or you know, maybe more for me, like, weird science. <laughs> a child of the 80s. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, any siblings? I have two sisters. I mm-hmm. um, an older sister who's a philosophy professor at Kenyon College and a younger sister who's the chief medical officer of a digital health company called Almada Health and a pediatrician at UCSF.
0: Okay. Okay. And what did your mom do?
1: My mom um, was our breadwinner, um, our hero. She um, was a public accountant. And worked for the armed services at Fort Sheridan Army Base and um, at the Great Lakes Naval Station um, as uh, my dad was um, a Vietnam veteran and um, I think distracted by that experience for much of his adult life. Huh. Do you have PTSD? You know, it's hard to say in retrospect. We lost him to pancreatic cancer along the way. Um, but I think the demons of Vietnam were um, were hard for him. And he had a productive career as an attorney, um, but was um, indeed unemployed for many of the last years of his life.
0: Oh, interesting. My dad is a Vietnam vet as well. Um, so what, what kind of um, values were in your household? What, were, were these your parents like uh, insistent on you getting straight A's, or, or what, <laughs> what kind of student were you? I think the deal we had worked out is that we could do whatever we wanted to as long as we brought
1: home straight A's. Um, but uh, you know, my folks were really intellectual, um, extremely supportive, had uh, for sure instilled in us this idea that if y- you worked hard um, and you really committed to something that, you know, interesting, exciting things would happen. Um, and my sisters and I had a sort of fun competition around school, and we were surrounded by really, uh, motivated students, um, children of professionals in a kind of classic suburban, perhaps sheltered environment. Um, but growing up in Highland Park,
0: Illinois, was a joy. Uh-huh. Okay. Highland Park P- Public Schools? Yes. Highland Park High School. Go Giants. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, but what kind of student were you?
1: Um, you know, uh, growing up, I was very interested in American literature um, and biochemistry. And um, uh, so I think in that way maybe a little bit balanced. I was really taken with um, storytelling and creative writing, uh, but on the flip side, really interested in science at the intersection of you know the naturalist perspective, the natural world, and atomic resolution, um, how things work, how machines and cells um, work. You can only get so deep in a public high school into those subjects, and so. I uh, came to Harvard for college um, really interested to double-click on American literature and biochemistry.
0: Wow, so this is an unusual dual-track science and humanities. You you were not one of these, like, C.P. Snow, two cultures. You're you're trying (laughs) to straddle both. As long as I could. I mean, at some
1: point you really have to declare a defined interest in one or the other, and I chose biochemistry because, thankfully, Um, In the second semester of organic chemistry, I was exposed to, introduced to Stuart Schreiber, who really, um, in his Chemistry 27 class, revealed the creativity of molecular recognition and small molecule design and the the natural world solution to molecular recognition. And anyway, it was just the idea that um, you could sculpt biomolecules and small molecules. To me... It revealed that there was a creative aspect to science, you know, amidst the massive download of, you know, molecular biophysics and all that you learn. Um, this idea that there was a, a creative aspect and design principles um, to access was
0: um, was a fork in the road. Did you get that earlier? Because a lot of people coming up think of science as like rote memorization, mm. it's boring. Like they, they, <laughs> they don't think it's creative in the same way that painting or poetry or mm. the arts are, which is wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, really think it was in this second year of school where um, it started undergraduate to. Fit, at undergraduate at Harvard. Undergraduate, where it started to seem like a creative art. I always liked the, um, the puzzle making. Of science and the explanatory nature of physics to phenomenon um, in the world. Um, but on the heels of taking Stewart's class, you know, I went as far down the rabbit hole as I could. I joined a research laboratory interested in the way that proteins exert forces of bending and twisting on DNA. And um, I took coursework in the graduate school and the medical school, um, including notably uh, Christopher Walsh's brilliant um, BCMP two hundred seven, a course on structure-based drug discovery.
0: Wait, you're taking graduate-level courses as an undergrad? No, at- many
1: people did in their senior year. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So, I mean, but this is Harvard. Uh, you know, w- did you always think that you were destined for this, and, and w- or were you mm. plagued by any self-doubt at any point?
1: No. You know, Luke, it's fair to say then, and if I'm being honest now, I've never gone about my education or training or my professional life with a Destination in mind, um, it was just the most curious fascination at the time for me then, as now, was the intersection of chemistry and biology.
0: And but you were optimistic. I mean, always. It, th- this is like part of your DNA. Like yeah. you're just this upbeat. Challenges are just you know hurdles to get over or around. I do think, regrettably, I'm I'm wired um, pretty optimistic.
1: Um, and I think a creative spirit in science is really is really important um, because there is a sense of wonder that's accompanied by real joy in science. Also, real heartache when your ideas don't um, don't transition as you'd like. Which is most of the time. Which is most of the time. But as I became a cancer doctor, especially uh, cancer medicine, made me a bitter optimist um, because to um, provide hope. In that situation and to work with people in such crisis um, can breed one of two responses perhaps. One is you know a a real sense of of dread and and doom and brutal realism Uh, but for me it bred this um, uh, inescapable
0: optimism. Okay so back to undergraduate time at Harvard. You meet Stu Schreiber, the famous chemical biologist. Um, What year was this? This was 1992. Okay, and you're still an undergrad? Sophomore. Sophomore. And just, like, raising your hand, saying, I, I want to come work on this structural biology stuff. It-, it looks curious and cool.
1: You know, I started in his course probably in the, the last row, and by the end of the semester, I was, you know, up in the front row um, with all of his adoring fans. Um, but at that time... Um, there weren't chemical biology PhD programs. And so as I started to dig in and learn about this new field, chemical biology, and learn um, what protein biochemistry looks like through the lens of small molecules, my interest was unapologetically translational. Um, And so the part of molecular recognition that interested me were medicines. And the part of chemical biology that fascinated me was the idea of exogenous control, that you could perhaps make molecules to switch genes on and off. Um, and, and lacking organized educational programming in chemical biology at that time, I went to medical school, because that's where you learn about diseases and drug molecules.
0: Okay, but most people go to medical school thinking think they're going to treat patients. Uh, was this not part of your plan? I had very little exposure to
1: clinical medicine, and um, my medical school application you know, read something like this, make no mistake about it, I don't want to be your doctor, I'm just very interested in medicines, learning how they work, and and perhaps someday learning how to make them. You could imagine that in 1994, amidst the boom and growth of health maintenance organizations, that this was a very unsuccessful application. (laughs) And I think I applied to 25 medical schools and was accepted to maybe one or two.
0: Um, Yeah, because they're going to invest a lot of time and money into training someone. They don't want you to run off and, I don't know, become a hedge fund analyst or, you know, (laughs) the things that people do. Or worse,
1: a pharmaceutical executive. (laughs) Um, But at the time, uh, there was a real push to grow primary care. And I could understand many medical schools not receiving that um, committed interest with reciprocal curiosity. But University of Chicago was very excited um, and very welcoming had a great relationship with Abbott Laboratories, had a strong basic science framework, exists in this wonderful, you know, little um, safe haven of Hyde Park as yeah. sort of an intellectual um, um, desert island on the south side of Chicago. And um, I found many like-minded students uh, there, as well as um, really orienting physician scientist faculty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the o- Obama's old stomping ground. <laughs> sure, University of Chicago. Okay, so early '90s, you you, uh, you come back there. You, you got your degree, undergraduate degree in biochemistry. Yes, uh, from Harvard. You go to University of Chicago to do the MD. They're they're okay with this idea of like learning how stuff works uh, at the molecular medicine level.
1: Yes, we didn't have a case-based curriculum at U of C at that time. It was um, a hardcore basic science curriculum, which I quite liked, um, the fundamentals of pharmacology with chemical structures and everything. Um, I had been invited to complete a Ph.D. during my MD, uh, but I really wanted to focus those four years on getting the full download on disease at the molecular level and to learn by being exposed for the very first time
0: What clinical practice was all about. So you actually did see patients on like an internship rotation series, right? Uh, That's
1: right. In the third year, um, you meet with patients for the very first time. And, you know, um, growing up in a relatively sheltered environment, being around um, patients so ill, uh, so distracted by disease was... um, was very upsetting for me to be honest with you um it's not a nice thing to say about yourself uh at that age but i i uh, hadn't hadn't experienced a lot of human emotions like the devastation of cancer to a patient or a family or to a child um until that time i found the third year rotations um to be very upsetting but um, they would prove extremely influential that coming off the wards at the end of third year I knew unambiguously that completing clinical training and practicing clinical medicine would be an important part of my career as a physician scientist.
0: Now, you have said quite openly about your dad um, dying of pancreatic cancer. When when did that happen? Was that happening during Mm. this time when you were back close to home at Chicago? He was thankfully well when I was
1: living in Chicago. Um, But at the conclusion of medical school, I um, moved back to Boston to retrain in internal medicine medical oncology, hematology, and then ultimately allogeneic stem cell transplantation. Um, and, um, and it was at the conclusion of my clinical training amidst my uh, retraining in organic chemistry uh, when my dad became
0: ill. Okay, so you were back in Boston. Correct. And how long was this, this additional training phase with, uh, here back <laughs> at the, was it at the Dana-Farber? It was
1: at a number of area institutions. Um, I did my internship and residency in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was a chance to really learn all the allied fields of medicine, uh, from primary care to intensive care. Um, Brigham and Women's is the inpatient facility for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, so there was great exposure to cancer medicine and honestly many inspiring role models. Um, At the end of those three years, I uh, pursued Um, fellowship training in oncology, hematology, and stem cell transplantation at the Dana-Farber and at Mass General. It's a combined training program. And at the conclusion of all that training, when many of my peers were starting their careers as clinical investigators or practicing oncologists, um, it's fair to say disappointed in the um, performance um, and creativity of the molecules that We had to offer cancer patients. Um, I went back and retrained in organic chemistry at Harvard with Stuart Schreiber um, for a postdoctoral research fellowship. All told, um, I um, left medical school in 1999 and applied for my
0: first job in 2007. Okay. So the postdoctoral fellowship with Schreiber would have been which years? That was 2004 to 2008. Okay. 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 And so these were uh, years uh, in oncology when, <laughs> it's terrible to say, but not a lot of action was happening. I mean, I was covering these stories and you know, this was the era when it was not that many drugs were coming through FDA and the ones that did might get you a 20% response rate. There, I mean, there were you know some targeted drugs like Gleevec was around and Herceptin and Rituxan. So there were, there were glimmers of hope, but um, nothing like we see today. Uh, Luke, you're right. Um, there was a imatinib and everything else. And, um,
1: you know, I um, was very influenced by the story of a imatinib um, as an
0: early career drug hunter because... Imatinib is the chemical name for Gleevec. Correct. Uh, sorry. Multi-blockbuster uh, sold by Novartis today.
1: Yeah. You know, coincidentally, um, a Novartis medicine. But what was special about imatinib is it really grew out of a chemical biology exercise of... Um, a group of chemists led by Eric Zimmerman interested to learn um, whether you could make an inhibitor for a kinase. And they found an Abelson tyrosine kinase inhibitor that was well positioned as a medicine for chronic myeloid leukemia driven by the Abel kinase. But what Imatinib did is it, it not only changed the expectations that scientists have for what's possible in cancer medicine, oncogene directed definitive therapeutics. But it rightly changed society's expectation as to what um, biomedicine could deliver. And just exactly as you say, Luke, in those years of training, 99, around the time Gleevec emerged, to 2008, when I opened my academic lab, um, there was a, starting to be in the chemistry and cancer biology literature a sense in this post genomic moment that. Finally, knowing how cancers are hardwired, that we would just line up all these oncogenes and drug them one by one. Um, and this proved more challenging, owing to some of the limitations of discovery chemistry. So, inspired by a matnib, but really grounded in the depressing reality of, you know, quote, modern cancer medicine, I went back and retrained in organic chemistry as the oldest living postdoc at Harvard. Um, how old? Oh, at that time, I was probably early 30s. Um, with the idea that if I could learn the concepts, um, the language, the tactics of the earliest moments of drug hunting, discovery, chemistry, chemical biology, that um, I could spend my career being, you know, a part of um, of the solution.
0: Well, and Schreiber, you know, was a, a pretty reliable guide to this, having witnessed kind of mm-hmm. that transition from a lot of serendipitous. Um, discovery, which the pharmaceutical industry um, did pretty well at for a number of years, until like the structure-based revolution came along, which he was a part of. Um, but that having that structural information combined with the ge- the genome, which was now on your desktop in these late aught years, still wasn't enough. We still weren't there. There were all these like elusive structures that that we didn't know how to bind with properly. Uh, didn't know, uh, uh, like, even uh, that word undruggable <laughs> mm. entered the lexicon. I know you hate that word. <laughs> hate that word. <laughs> <laughs> so, but how did you, like, take yourself to school on these concepts that you mentioned and, and to think, okay, I'm going to position myself as a chemical biologist to, like, mm. go after these hard targets?
1: I'd love to say there was uh, an overarching strategy. It was just, The thing I was most curious to learn about at the end of my cancer training, um, you know, the the principles, the language, and the laboratory techniques of drug hunting. Um, And I can't say enough positive things about Stuart Treiber as a mentor. He never technically hired me. If there are trainees listening to this podcast, I I think I just kept showing up and (laughs) got in through the back door through another physician
0: scientist, Paul Neum. So Um, somebody had enough grant money where you could buy ramen noodles to like... (laughs) No,
1: Luke, even better than that, a fully trained oncologist at the time, um, Dana-Farber was very supportive um, to send me across town and to learn from Stewart and ultimately through the early moments of the Broad Institute, you know, really how to knit together chemistry, biology, and medicine. Um, And, you know, Stewart is a brilliant communicator, is absolute visionary in science, uh, but also a wonderful and patient mentor. Um, I could say humbly, I did not accomplish a lot during my postdoc. I feel always a a debt to Stuart. I never delivered him a great nature paper. I was truthfully learning from the ground up how to make a carbon-carbon bond. My research project was to learn what I would now call lead optimization, how to take a non-selective molecule that binds many proteins, in this case the histone deacetylase family that Stuart discovered, and make a very selective inhibitor for just one of them, called HDAC6. These molecules proved very incisive chemical tools for the scientific community, and we have worked through a startup company to bring those medicines to patients, then called Acetylon, ultimately acquired by Celgene. Um, I remember that one. I actually wrote about it at the time. Oh, is that right? Ten years ago or something. Um, But my time with Stuart was um, just an elite training experience. And actually, it was, in retrospect, just what I needed um, to have this last piece of the puzzle, to understand cancer medicine, its opportunities and limitations, to be familiar with the path of drug development, um, and then finally learning where drugs come from. And so on the heels of that uh, training in, in chemical biology, um, in 2007, I applied to two biotech companies and two academic jobs. And that was, I guess, the first real Um, key decision point in my career.
0: So you weren't sure you could have gone to biotech or you could have gone to academia? That's right. Um, You
1: know, again, my um, interest in chemical biology was thoroughly then as it is today translational. And biotech is a wonderful place to practice translational chemical biology. But I ultimately took an academic job because having worked in so many laboratories along the way, I was really excited and curious to see if um, if the ideas that I and my team could come up with would be um, interesting and important and um, allow new insights both into the you know, elegance of human
0: biology, but also um, prove relevant to patients with cancer. Okay, but this is the point where a lot of people are wondering, wait a minute, how did you get a faculty job at one of these great institutions uh, when you're a postdoc? Mm-hmm. I mean... Maybe got some bright ideas and some helpful letters of recommendation, but you know, there's a squeeze going on and kind of a numbers game, not many positions available to be had. Yes, Uh, how how did what was your break? Well, I mean, Luke, if I'm being honest, I got one offer letter
1: and it was from Dana Farber, and I was so thrilled to get it, Um, I took it just immediately. Um, Dana Farber had a vision from Stan Korsmeyer, um, who's since passed away. to build a capability in organic chemistry to put in one of the world's best cancer biology research facilities a cancer chemistry capability. What would happen if
0: chemistry was in adjacency to biology? To do medicinal chemistry, things like lead optimization, traditionally the domain of industry. Dana Farber said, actually, you know what? There's a place for that here. Let's do that. We were never so bold. Uh Um,
1: We held and hold... Um, the discipline of true medicinal chemistry in just high enough regard that we would um, call our work chemical biology, the exploratory phase of finding first molecules with first biological activities. We assumed in building our laboratories that um, there would be a natural point after pharmacologic target validation, after the proof of concept or prototype drug had been invented where we would put the technologies into professional research environments, spin out biotech companies to ultimately deliver therapeutics. But in my lab, as in Nathaniel Gray's lab and Lauren Walensky's lab and the handful of chemical biologists that we ultimately recruited to work together, we were pleasantly surprised that with these bright Harvard and Northeastern um, undergrads and graduate students um, and learning along the way, some of the principles of medicinal chemistry we did ultimately make therapeutics in those few
0: months. People did not look their noses down on this as mere, you know, widget producing or crank turning. Like, oh, somebody already invented, you know, the b- prototypical binding uh, drug, and you're just working off of some existing mm. scaffold and turning a knob or dial here. That's mm. like beneath us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a lot of people looked down their
1: nose at the work we were doing, um, and sometimes they were generous enough even to share those insights with us. But you know, our mission at that time was, first and foremost, to understand human biology, to provide a unique training environment, um, to report our research you know, in the uh, appropriate venue where it would be best appreciated, with the hope that there would be relevance for medicine. I think we were successful at Dana-Farber because we weren't trying to be a biotech company. We were, in some respect, a biotech company at Harvard, but to create knowledge.
0: Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach 3,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. Another thing to do is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Interested in getting a group sharing license at your company? Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com com so you get a faculty position now who's supporting you did you get like your first r1 grant like successfully uh, come through? <laughs> well here
1: I had a real angel Ken Anderson, um, the storied multiple myeloma uh, leader mm-hmm. physician scientist um, there is no grant that would build, two and ultimately 12 fume hoods at Dana-Farber. Um, thankfully, the people of this region and even nationally support Dana-Farber charitably. And it's only because of the PanMass Challenge and those who've contributed to the myeloma activities of the Farber that the resource existed to build out um, the 1,200 square feet of chemical biology space that we occupied. I'm told that the two Mott fume hoods that we
0: built in the mayor building alone were almost a million dollars. I love hearing you say this because you know I've got a passionate charity uh, side gig, I guess you could call it at this point, raising a million dollars for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And that's exactly what I envision it doing. It it provides some of that flexibility to start things that can then become productive, grant-winning enterprises in their own right. That's right. I started the
1: lab with um, two small grants from private foundations. Um, Ken's generous support uh, to build out the fume hoods, um, the Dana-Farber startup package, um, which I found also very generous. And, you know, eight years later, when I closed the lab, we probably had um, 18 active grants, um, maybe half or more from the National Institutes of Health. There's so much in starting a laboratory, like starting a company, that is just trying to engender that first blush of momentum, you know, just swimming out to the first wave. But when you catch it, which for us was um, the discovery of bromo domain inhibitors and the characterization of um, transcriptional signaling from BRD4, um, when you catch that wave, the world of science is um, designed to support scientists with momentum. But engendering momentum in early career, um, I can't even say enough how much the um, charitable contributions to Dana-Farber advanced our mission.
0: That first million is the hardest, they say, and it takes a whole lot of fuel to burn on the rocket launch pad to get into lower Earth orbit, to use a different metaphor. Well said. (laughs) But once you're there, man, uh, you can see a lot. A lot's possible. Yes. Uh, So, bromodomains. Now, you're talking about um, a new line of attack uh, biologically, Mm -hmm with uh, some compounds, by the way, uh, yes. that might even become drugs. new target. Now now people are probably sitting up and paying attention when you go give talks at, at the Dana-Farber, right? Yeah, you know,
1: there's this unspoken rule in chemistry um, that you really can't study in your new laboratory the biology of the lab you trained in. You really have to chart a new path. And Stewart had um, discovered, and I had studied in his group, the enzymes that remove memory marks, from the human genome. Um, The marks we studied were called acetylation marks. And so we studied the deacetylases. Um, But in in learning about these erasers of cellular memory, I got really excited about the readers of cellular memory. What are the proteins that recognize, that molecularly recognize these little post-it notes placed around the human genome? And, um, If the deacetylases that I studied with Stuart are the lysine erasers, the bromodomains are the lysine readers. And there were very few biologists studying bromodomains at the time, and there were no pharmaceutical companies or chemists. And so we identified this as a real opportunity to build first chemical tools to study the bromodomain family, and then to use these tools in model systems of cancer to ask the question, Are epigenetic reader proteins, bromodomains, relevant for cancer cell memory? And could you, with a molecule, cause cancer cells to forget that they're cancer?
0: That is, forget dividing indefinitely until they end up killing the organism. Correct. Basically send them into like a a senescent kind of state? Or send them back from where they came. Maybe even turn them into a normal cell.
1: Um, This was the big idea, Um, But we had to start from just absolutely square one. There was no bromodomain kit from Invitrogen, you know. We had to build um, the protein biochemistry, the cellular assays, the measurements of where these proteins sit around the genome, the computational environment to analyze this data. And we did high-throughput screening and scoured the published and the patent literature to find starting points for discovery chemistry, all with eight people. Um, in a 1,200-square-foot lab. And recognizing how hard it would be to make inhibitors of protein-protein interactions, one of these classically considered undruggable uh, mechanisms in the cell, we um, took a decidedly open posture that we would be highly collaborative, that we would um, bring our unique, in that environment, capability in chemistry, And chemical biology and genome-wide gene control um, to great
0: biology labs who could, with their chocolate and our peanut butter, maybe do something really interesting. So this is the the late aughts, uh, around the time when uh, the Internet is in that 2.0 wave, uh, becoming more interactive, more open source. You decide, like a true academic, to go all in with open source um, in a way that, like, People with proprietary small molecule compounds in the pharmaceutical industry don't do. Didn't do then and still don't do today. Uh, What was driving your thinking around uh, open science? Yeah, well, you know, where available, a small molecule can be an
1: incredibly instructive tool to understand human biology. But some of the most instructive molecules come from pharmaceutical companies, and they're just hard to access, Biologists don't have a fume hood to just make it themselves. They're often not sold from vendors online. And I had seen in my training with Stuart that when I provided people a sample of my HDAC6 inhibitor, they could report back really clarifying guidance on what HDAC6 does and honestly what it doesn't do. And so we decided in our small lab when we had first bromodomain inhibitors that we could go down one of two roads. We could throw up our elbows like many academic labs do, corner the market on the study of bromodomain biology, scoop up all the grants, grow the lab to 35 people, and just publish everything ourselves. God forbid, don't let anybody see your structure. Exactly. Or we could do the opposite. We could put the chemical structure out there. We could put the full synthetic pathway out there. We could put grams of material um, into the public domain with an MTA that basically says, don't eat this and um, see what happens. And we actually had a thoroughly considered discussion at a group meeting um, at Dana-Farber. And with the support of institutional leadership, we thought to do this social experiment to innovate nothing but to apply the established principles of open source as so profoundly transformative in the field
0: of computer science to the historically very private discipline of drug hunting. And surely somebody in these meetings said, wait, Jay, you're going to give away the secret sauce to your competitors so that they can scoop you and, you know, (laughs) run your lab into the ground? Yes. And you know what, Luke? It happened in the very
1: first year. We submitted samples um, to laboratories that we thought could be interested to try to seed some research. And we received some inquiries from some laboratories that were excited about some of the very things we were excited about. And that was a real gut check for us. Would we weaponize a direct competitor? Um, What I've learned and know now, which I didn't know then, is that it's so powerful when science is replicated that the immediate truth distilled from two studies, say one from my lab and one from Chris Vakic's lab at Cold Spring Harbor, both revealing the role of BRD4 in supporting the transcription, the expression of the gene MYC, the causative gene for most of human cancer. So powerful is the immediacy of that replicated finding in our cell paper and in his Nature paper, um, that we as scientists and society writ large benefit much, much more greatly from this brand
0: of open science than from closed or sheltered science. Okay, but at some point you know that your competitors are going to scoop you. Every now and then you do this. Uh, That just kind of sets the bar higher for you then? Like you just say, okay, we're going to get scooped every once in a while, but, you know, we've got to think a step ahead. Yeah. Luke, we decided that if
1: we could be scooped by another laboratory, that our idea was not original enough. And with so few people in the group, um, we really held ourselves to that standard. Would our ideas be so unoriginal that another lab would do the exact same thing in the exact same calendar year? And it happened, but it, thankfully it didn't happen
0: that often. That's, uh, that's a bold thing because I'm be very. It's, it's really hard to be original. It's really hard to be original. <laughs> and I'd like to say I did it every
1: time I didn't. Um, but, you know, these um, ambitious graduate students... Um, This is how they saw their purpose in the lab, was to disclose something perfectly unknown um, to the rest of the world. We found ourselves never in really competition with the outside world, but very accessible as collaborators and sometimes as just open contributors. Um, I learned, you know, as an established scientist, something that I think most early career millennial scientists already know, and that connectivity is the new priority in science. When, when I was training as a scientist, you wanted a two-author paper. Let there be no ambiguity, who did this work, me, uh-huh. and who paid for this work, Stuart Schreiber. Um,
0: First author and
1: last author. Yes, you know, how, <laughs> how this idea came to light. It's different now. The scientists in my group there, like our scientists here at NIBOR, crave connectivity. They're interested to see how many people can they get on this paper. Can they get Phil Sharp on this paper published with a Nobel laureate? Um, You see this in social networking, of course, but I believe science is moving in this direction, that the amplification of an idea, its relevance through its replication, and the immediacy and freshness of originality of an idea considered through the orthogonal lenses of different fields of biology that almost no lab has singularly installed um, puts a high priority on connectivity.
0: Yeah, I mean, people have this idea of like scientists being uh, original creative geniuses like an Einstein or something, thinking something Mm. that no one else has thought of before. Actually, that's not where most discoveries come from. You know this. I mean, actually, tools are really important for gathering new kinds of data so that people can see new patterns. That's one. But you're talking about a whole other way of open source science, putting things out there that are a very great use to the community. You, I don't know if you intended this, but I mean, it had the effect of building up a tremendous network at Goodwill Reservoir with people across the scientific enterprise. Suddenly, like Jay Bradner is known and, uh, you know, in a a positive light. You're the kind of guy that that helps people do interesting work. Yeah, I mean, if that
1: helps, you know, other people carry themselves in a more accessible way, that's super useful. I could tell you there was 0% of this um, that was that was driven by self-promotion. In fact, we thought, as you've already alluded to, that there would be some tax on our laboratory for having gone down this path. In the fullness of time, though, you are right. We shared the molecule with more than 500 laboratories, published probably 200 papers in eight years, um, and it became a very competitive space, but in a way that was wonderful for patients. There are 12 clinical-stage bromodomain inhibitors today all of which benefit from the directionality, the clinical directionality provided by the broadly distributed study
0: of BRD4 via our JQ1 molecule. JQ1 was it. And so you, um, you become better known. You did a TED Talk there, 2011. Last I looked, it had over half a million views. I've I mean, right? talking about chemical biology. This is uh, a new world. Cool. Um, now, one of the things you talked about there was your dad. Now, when, did, when yeah. come back to this, when did your dad die from pancreatic cancer? He passed away in two
1: thousand seven, uh, just four months after my son was born. And you know, sadly, um, from his diagnosis to the time he passed, he wasn't he wasn't healthy one day of his life. And at that time, you know, three years into having my own lab capable of synthesizing any type of molecule, and three biotech companies started and. Access to the very best doctors and you know that Dana Farber, that our field could provide. There was just nothing to help him. Pancreatic cancer, as you know, it is is driven by two very challenging events: the loss of tumor suppressors, and we just absolutely lack molecules to compensate for proteins that are lost. p53 being a big one. Often p53, p16, um, and activation of Kras. And Mick is in there too, right? Downstream of KRAS um, is oncogenic Mick. Yeah. And so, um, this to me was a real wake-up call. That um, I had been really fascinated by the challenge of approaching protein-protein interactions. I've been really inspired by the learnings of having a probe for BRD4, and um, I became very passionate about trying to, you know, have a career in science that connects to, um, yeah, new threads
0: of therapeutic technologies. This is a real feeling of helplessness that a lot of people in this industry feel when a family member, a loved one is affected because you look at the standard of care and it's it was then and today, it's gemcitabine, right? I yes. mean, a standard chemotherapy that kills all kinds of rapidly dividing cells kind of indiscriminately, mm-hmm. um, even though we've known KRAS, uh, p53 their role for many many years we don't have drugs targeted for that i mean you looked at this and said like I, I think like a classic entrepreneur my gosh there has to be a better way we have to be able to have a better approach for something like pancreatic cancer that's right i mean we've known about ras and mick and their role in cancer since 83
1: we have almost an atomic level resolution of ras signaling but lacking a hydrophobic pocket, lacking the inability to displace GDP and GTP from the RAS active site. Um, it would just take a new science of therapeutics to approach RAS and MIC and P53. And, and though my dad had a big influence on my thinking at the time, um, you know, research at Dana-Farber is performed in direct adjacency to patients. Our laboratory scientists share the cafeteria um, with you know, children, young adults and mature adults carrying around IV poles, fanny packs with 5 fluorouracil. You see them. Every day. And so there was no shortage of inspiration. There was also no shortage of, um, you know, the pressing and urgent
0: need for a type of science that wasn't incremental. So open source is kind of it. You're getting some momentum here. 500 labs using it. You're really rocking and rolling. You're getting networked and known now in the venture capital community and more and more startups uh, as an extension of your work at at Dana-Farber, which has a translational bent to begin with. Uh, Then you get the call. (laughs) 2015, Novartis. What was that like? Well, it was really unexpected,
1: Luke. I had never... um Looked at another job in my time at Dana Farber, um, so passionate about the mission of that place, um, really proud of the chemical biology program, the community that we were building, and honestly just having a lot of fun at the intersection of chemistry and biology and medicine and biotech. But I was given a seminar at Sloan Kettering, and Charles Sawyer's pulled me aside. He's a director of Novartis. I didn't know that at the time, and. Um, He had passed along that they were starting to imagine who the next president of NIBR might be, the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. Wait, how
0: was Charles in position to?
1: Uh, He's a a board member for Novartis. Okay. And um, said that they had made a list, and I was on the list. Could I be interested in this role? And Luke, if I'm being honest, it was just a monosynaptic reflex. I thought for a minute and said, um, you know, I'd, I'd quite like to work at NIBR. And he said, good, you're the lead candidate. (laughs) Now, it turns out this is not the way to negotiate an employment contract. (laughs) Um, But all kidding aside, Luke, um, it was that obvious to me that uh, knowing what I knew about Nibber and doubly true now that I'm here, um, this idea that an organization would make the era-appropriate investment in biomedical research um, finally equipped with much of the directionality of disease biology and with these new extraordinary therapeutic technologies that in an organization like NIBR, Um, I could learn to paint on a much bigger canvas
0: and work alongside some of the best drug hunters in the field. Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. Annual budget of $10 billion. How many scientists working around the world? Yes. Well, you call it the Starship Enterprise. (laughs) I mean, it's got all the tools you could ever dream of.
1: I have to say, Luke, it's a really unique place to work. Um, We do at Novartis spend almost $9 billion on R&D. Nibber, is the research engine for Novartis. We are responsible for the concept of a therapeutic, target discovery, first prosecution of a target with chemistry, um, gene therapy, cell therapy, all the way to proof of concept in phase 2A. Um, our annual budget here at Nibber is more like $2.6 of the
0: nine. You spent a lot of the money on the phase 3 trials, which still have risk in them. Yeah, yeah. correct. You're early. Um, but in this discovery space,
1: you know, Perhaps unique in biopharma, um, we invest the ideas and efforts um, of 6,000 scientists in eight therapeutic areas um, in six sites around the world. In a truthfully visionary way, almost 14 years ago, Novartis was the first pharmaceutical company to um, drop anchor here in Kendall Square, Cambridge. And uh, here at our research headquarters, we're about 2,500 scientists. Um, but we um, execute science in oncology, immunology, cardiovascular medicine, neuroscience, ophthalmology, respiratory disease, musculoskeletal disease, and tropical disease at six sites around the world.
0: Why would why was this so immediately appealing to you? Uh, mm. I mean, uh, your predecessor, Mark Fishman, had a long and distinguished record here. Uh, you, you had a good thing going at, at Dana Farber. Um, what was uh, what excited you about coming over to make that move? that that big break that a lot of people are reluctant to make? Uh, Impact. Um, The
1: decision to come here was uh, purely driven by a sense, um, a conviction that, you know, working in this type of research environment, I could connect to a much greater impact. When, When we developed first bromodomain inhibitors, there was a joy of learning how BRD4 is involved in cancer cell memory. But when we started Tentia Therapeutics and moved JQ1 into the clinic as JQ2, um, and it worked uh, for patients in desperate situations, it was a very powerful experience. Um, And uh, I think having had the experience of seeing an idea so thoroughly considered in basic science, so firmly rooted in basic science um, work in the only relevant model system of disease, the patient, it changed me and recalibrated um, my goals in science to be a part of an elite scientific institution that unapologetically um, delivers elite science and service for patients.
0: You got a taste of some proof of concept in phase one, two.
1: And got h- hungry
0: for more. Yes. Um, okay. But so what were these conversations like? With, with I mean, this is a huge management job. I mm. mean, how does one manage this many people doing this many things? <laughs> uh, how do you even keep track of it all? Yeah, you're right to ask. Um, uh, this was a big unknown for me. And I
1: think um, I want I would commend the board and the leadership of Novartis for having the bravery to recruit me into this role. Because... I had never held a leadership position in academia. If anything, I had successfully avoided leadership positions in academia.
0: Well, you you ran a little startup,
1: which was your lab. Correct. Um, Our lab at the time was maybe 30 people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was consistently asked the question, how do you scale leadership from 30 to 6,000? I would say that um, I've learned a lot in this role and that Novartis was very well organized to receive me in this role. Um, over the last three years, especially working alongside and now for Vasnar Simon, who has probably spent more time thinking about and experimenting with leadership styles in his career than anybody I've ever met, um, that um, this has been a great education in um, leadership and science, but is for sure still a work in progress.
0: What's one thing that you've learned about being a leader? Of a large organization in, I guess, two to three years now. Initially, I naively
1: thought, oh, scientific leadership is about ideas. Because I would follow somebody who had great ideas. um, And that we have 6,000 idea generators here. And so I could be a curator and harvest, package, communicate, enhance, accelerate um, these ideas. And Luke, for sure, that's a big part of it. um, But it's not all of it. Um you know I, I ultimately think leadership now maps closest back to trust. Um trust being the absence of doubt. And if people have confidence in your genuine um commitment to the ideas, your ability to communicate them, um if they trust you with um with their careers, um and if you can manage to share that burden, that responsibility, with a great leadership team that's also trustworthy, um,
0: then I think there's a chance for for really strong leadership. Well, this is a trust based industry. When you have this much uncertainty and this much risk in everything that you're doing, I mean, you need to believe in that person in the foxhole with you uh, that they're going to tell the truth, even when things go bad. Um, that that you're real, that you're not faking it. Yeah,
1: well, um, I'm by no means a leadership expert. I've read 18 books on leadership um, and they're the same books I used to browse right past in the airport. (laughs) All since getting this job? (laughs) Correct, and there's a stack of them right over your shoulder. Um, And I have learned some things, um, but this is truthfully on-the-job training, about trust, about authenticity, about ideas, about consistent communication, about real-time feedback. Um, about servant leadership, standing behind the people um, um, that you most immediately lead, as opposed to dominating every conversation. And as an
0: ex-academic, Luke, I could tell you humbly, there was real learning there for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, on a higher kind of strategic level, you have to set priorities. Yes. Even at a big company like this, there's so much going on in science, and you can't do it all. So, what things? rise to the top of your priority list, and which things have you said, we're just not going to do that and dilute our focus? This turns out to be a very important aspect of this role uh, because our board
1: and thus our shareholders um, trust that um, the research leadership team and I will allocate this extraordinary resource for the greatest possible benefit to humanity. And it turns out medicines that most benefit humanity turn out to be very um, important commercial products for Novartis. So there's a pure confluence of interest between game-changing medicines and important products for Novartis. I find that very liberating because I now just have to think about moving the needle for patients. When I arrived here in my first year, we had the Gleevec patent expiry, which is, again, a wonderful thing for society. Um, But it meant that we would need to reconsider the global footprint um, and the absolute budget of NIBR of Novartis Research. Um, and this is a crisis that's also an opportunity because it meant in the first year that I could, with my leadership team, really reconfigure um, NIBR on a strong foundation for the future. Um, and now working against a smaller budget um, than before, though surely very generous um, and adequate for all of our research ambitions, we exited four therapeutic areas, we closed two research sites, we wound down uh, perhaps six or more leases, and we contracted the size of the portfolio from 430 drug discovery projects to 340. Um, the pharmaceutical industry and scientists therein are, are used to this um, jarring Ebb and flow, these cycles of restructuring. Other companies have been through this too. Correct. But we just took it um, as a catalytic moment, as actually a stepwise evolutionary moment um, to become the company of the future, building off of our extraordinary legacy um, that Mark and colleagues um, developed. There were some very painful choices taken. We had one of the strongest, if not the strongest, infectious disease portfolios in the world Uh, But our organization commercially supports six therapeutic areas, which is already a lot, and was not intending to build an infectious disease commercial sales force. So despite having incredible medicines for multi-drug-resistant bacteria and for respiratory and liver viruses, um, we were the wrong owner of those technologies. And we've now worked to position those therapeutics and many of those scientists into startup
0: biotech companies that would perhaps be a better environment for that research. There are other ways to, uh, other structures, other organizations that can do things. And that's probably a separate podcast about uh, our, our lack of incentives for antibiotics and vaccines. I'd um, love to go deep with you on that. I feel very strongly that um,
1: powerful pharmaceutical marketplaces and um, powerful government agencies can radically move and reposition drug hunting resources with these types of
0: incentives. Yeah, it's really important. Right now we have good incentives for cancer, and thankfully that's a, that's a good news for cancer patients. It is, and um, rare disease and pediatric
1: disease. And these incentives, I can tell you, play out in real time um, in decision-making in our governance
0: bodies. Now, back on that strategic front, um, the big problem all R&D leaders face is the, R- the productivity problem. Yes. Uh, the attrition rate is just you know still one in ten or maybe just a little bit uh, up or down from that on a given year. There's a lot of money spent on projects that fail. A lot of technologies coming along to outfit the modern lab that have sped things up, automated things, improving our ability to ask an answer quickly. Are we do you see anything happening that encourages you that you know we can improve upon that hit rate, make take it from one in ten to something like, two in 10 and Mm. like transform the economics of this business? I do. And I don't, um, we have
1: one of the largest discovery portfolios in the industry. And so we've taken the position to measure everything. Um, if analysts have a hard time quantifying productivity because of imperfect access to data, we have access to all of our own data. And so we've built an analytics group over the last three years led by Stephen Cho to understand our portfolio in um, dollars and cents resolution so that we can start to ask questions around R&D productivity. Um, I don't doubt that the trends reported by BCG and McKinsey are are real and declining. Um, This isn't just the pharmaceutical industry, it's biotech as well, where the strike prices are supernova high and the Series A financing is massive, which will only breed greater strike prices down the road. Um, Innovation is expensive, whether it's internal or external. Um, But in order to be more productive, the the moves that we've made so far um, are to focus our portfolio down around eight unambiguous parameters that we try to maximize um,
0: that we call QRED. It's our way of um, qualifying research and early development. I guess let's just back up. I'm interested in some of these enabling technologies that you – are there any that you you're really particularly enthusiastic about? Whether it's the DNA sequencing oh, sure. or the cryo EM or uh, you know computational discovery, you know modeling of structures in movies.
1: Yes. So can I ask you, Luke? We're divorcing then from productivity because some of those are relevant to productivity mm-hmm. insofar as they generate multiple um, therapeutic agents. But my great curiosities around uh, disruptive therapeutic technologies. Are, are often not because of productivity inspirations. How would you want to consider this?
0: Well, uh, if you're not thinking along productivity lines, why get them? Uh oh, OK. So, um,
1: so maximizing R&D productivity remains a challenge because of the great uncertainty um, that accompanies each project in its genesis. You say 1 in 10. It could be 1 in 20 in many research environments. I believe that we can maximize delivery on investment if we work within core strategic areas where we have longitudinal commitment, and if we go after targets that are highly validated, even if they are intractable. This is very important. Rather than collect low-hanging fruit that is potentially relevant to disease, can we distill down, as we have done in oncology, through a very disciplined process The small number of highly validated targets, the unambiguous must-haves, and then drug them, irrespective of tractability.
0: So maybe if I get this, like you you couldn't necessarily point to an investment in one of these technologies to say, oh, it it improved our R&D productivity rate, but it paved the way for a drug against P53. Exactly. Now, I do think there is relevance to productivity amongst the therapeutic
1: technologies that we then look at to approach these undruggable targets we tend to make asymmetric high investments in those platforms that can yield multiple medicines. We acquired the company Avexis for um, billions of dollars. Yep. Um, and uh, there's an extraordinary medicine, um, potentially for patients with spinal muscular atrophy. But moreover, there is a first world capability in AAV, um, viral vector manufacturing, and in a powerful IND engine. Now, with that technology platform, we can drive pipeline projects through against perfectly validated targets because they are um, explained, often by human Mendelian genetics. For undruggable targets, we've made major investments in three new brands of chemistry. DNA-encoded library technology so that we could increase the size of our haystack when we look for needles. When I arrived here, we had about one8 million molecules available to us for high-throughput screening. Fast forward three years, through this technology platform we have almost two billion molecules. Wow. Um, And expect to have development candidates nominated this year from DNA-encoded library chemistry for undruggable targets. Okay, so this leads you to the era of big data and AI machine learning, right? To select the best compounds. It can often be very helpful. Targeted protein degradation was an investment that we made Um, Because if one can't bind and engage a hydrophobic pocket, a key into a keyhole of a protein target, how then could we drug it? We imagine that we could capture disordered, undruggable proteins at moments of weakness, moments where they're structured sitting on top of other proteins and then bind into these interfaces. Um, And our first
0: molecule from our degradation
1: science um, should move into human clinical investigation
0: this quarter. Well, and that's near and dear to you. It comes from your lab. I mean, pro- you still follow targeted protein degraders. That's um, right. In the current job. Okay. This is such an awesome time. We've, we've touched on a few of these technologies that make this such an exciting time to be in your chair, to, to see, like, if you look out 10 years uh, at what you might be able to, to do on the way out of here, <laughs> um, it's a lot. Uh, we're on however many generations of AAV vectors. I don't know, but they're a whole lot better than they were ten years ago. Uh, this is this is pretty cool. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the people, because you need people uh, from not just here, but the scientific enterprise to apply their brain power to these hard problems. Uh, you did just before uh, this meeting. I saw you announced a postdoctoral fellowship yes. program. A lot of companies have postdoc fellowship programs. What, um, what are you hoping to accomplish? Is this tapping into some of your your, your academic network or, or philosophy around like, open science from the past? Yeah. You're you giving know, them the keys to the kingdom, letting them come in here, use your library, uh, meet
1: with your people. No, that's right. And, and thanks for picking up on this. We're really excited about this innovation postdoctoral fellowship. In the master plan that we wrote in 2016 for Novartis Research, the fifth theme of the strap plan is invest in our people. Um, It's not enough to approach the toughest problems in drug hunting with elite science. We have to care as much about the experience of doing science here as the science itself. And it turns out um, that having postdocs and trainees in the lab just elevates everybody's game. It puts you in a mindset of thinking out loud. Um, Teaching is, of course, the best way for learning. These brilliant, often young, early career scientists ask naive questions that are so sophisticated. And we also think it's something really unique that we can contribute. Um, I believe there is a science of therapeutics. And the historical model of train in academia, work in industry, works. There's no question about it. But... Many early career scientists that I meet at meetings, as yours, um, they cut their teeth in synthetic and pure organic chemistry, but they crave an understanding of how chemistry works at the interface of biology and how chemical biology works at the interface of medicine. When I arrived here, I saw an extraordinary training environment, many ex-full professors working here. Um, and maybe an
0: under-tapped resource of early career talent. And you can bring them through here on fellowships or sabbaticals. And, you know, they're not here to build a career. They can ask the fearless questions and be a little impolitic if they have to. It, it's, it help, maybe helps you ward off organizational atherosclerosis, perhaps? <laughs> I think so. You know, many
1: pharmaceutical companies, our own included, over the last 10 years, have had training programs to show the world that they can do elite basic science as well. The missed opportunity is that this is one of the only environments where you can train to be a drug hunter. And we see the Innovation Postdoc Fellowship as the definitive passport stamp for
0: early career scientists interested in making therapeutics. Jay Bradner, we could go on for hours here, but we're out of time. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.